Thank you, Roger, for leading us in that prayer and the worship team for leading us in song so far. It is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. Uh, it's good to see everybody here, and there's a lot of faces I, I don't recognize as well. So uh, those of you who are visiting for the first time or the first couple times, I look forward to being able to meet you in the foyer and, uh, and getting to know you a little bit better. Now, we do often have a sharing time here at Stony Brook Fellowship, and sometimes we have lots shared, and sometimes we don't have as much. And so I thought, well, you know what, I'll share a little bit, because the last two Sundays I was away on vacation. Uh, my family and I, we went down to Arizona to be with my, uh, my wife's sister and her brother-in-law and their family, and we hadn't seen them for three years, uh, all due to COVID travel restrictions. And so it was wonderful to be there with family. But I will also say that being away this April to be in Phoenix also turned out to be a really good life choice. The family was there. They were the reason. But man, was it a good, it was a great place. We had a great time, but I don't feel almost guilty about sharing, you know, some of how much we enjoyed this because I have it on good authority that the weather here was suboptimal while we were gone. And and it's almost mean to bring this up. So I, I won't talk a lot about the fact that the lowest high temperature we had during our time there was 28 degrees Celsius. I certainly won't take too much time talking about when we got too hot, we could just jump into the cold, refreshing pool in the backyard. I will not dwell on the fact that when it dropped down to about 15, 16 degrees in the evening and the kids were in bed, we could, us four adults could just jump into the hot tub almost every evening and spend time together that way. And, and I certainly won't elaborate too much on the fact that my son Malachi, after swimming, and was then basking in the sun on this lounger and he sighs and says out loud, ah, is this what heaven is going to be like? <laughs> to which the only real reply was, yes, son, I sure hope so. My goodness, it was a, it was a good time. But I won't, I won't bring that up because that would be a little bit mean-spirited. What I would like to talk about very briefly is our church experience. When we go down to visit our relatives there, they go to Christ Church of the Valley called CCV which is now the second largest church in the United States of America. It is a megachurch. And we went there on the weekend after Easter, and so what they did is they were recapping some of what happened on the Easter weekend. And on that weekend, across all of their 12 campuses in the greater Phoenix area, they had over 73,000 people attend one of their services. (laughs) 73,000 people. During one of my visits there, I actually was able to be introduced by my brother-in-law to one of their main teaching pastors. He was hanging around. And he introduces me and says, this is my brother-in-law, Andrew. He's also a pastor. And this, and this guy goes, oh, what's your church like? I said, well, it's a bit different. <laughs> you know? And it's not about being good or bad. It's one of those things where our, my experience there is vastly different. And, and often when us pastors get away to a different church, we look for things, you know, good ideas that we can borrow or steal, depending on your viewpoint. And it's even hard for me to do that. It's almost like they're speaking a different language of church. Uh, But I also appreciate what they do. They celebrate the right things. In addition to sharing how many people attended, they shared on how many baptisms occurred over Easter weekend. Do you want to know how many people got baptized there in that church on one weekend? Just under 1,200 people. Just under 1,200 people got baptized of the public confession of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, big church is, 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 is different, and we can be skeptical, and we see some of it done really bad, but it is impossible to deny that God's at work in the valley in Phoenix, Arizona. And you know what? God's at work here in Steinbeck. And one of the things I love about going there and just worshiping alongside people, I don't know. I don't know anyone besides my relatives, but we are still worshiping 
the one true God. We are still worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I just get reminded of how big the kingdom of God is and how much he is moving in this part of the world and in that part of the world. We have so much in common. And truly, we all share in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ something that we have continued to talk about. We're going to spend some more time on it here today ever since that Easter weekend. We are getting close to wrapping up our sermon series on spiritual renewal. And today I'd invite you to to turn in your own Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're going to pick up this story right after the road to Emmaus story that we we went over the last two weeks. And I'll read this passage for you and you can uh, follow along in your own Bible and, uh, and then we will learn from it together. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Let's pray together once more. Holy Father, I know personally for me it is good to be back, not just here with my church family, but back to be able to carry on this responsibility of being able to uh, preach and teach from your word. God, it is truly your spirit that makes all the difference. And I pray that you would once again open our eyes and our hearts to see, to hear, and to understand what you have in store for us, both in this life and the next. I pray that we would know you better for the time we spend in your word today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, this story is happening right after the story of the road to Emmaus, and it opens with the 11 disciples talking about the report from those other disciples who had met Jesus on that road. And and so Tim and Earl did a wonderful job working through this story in the last two weeks, and I thank them for, for doing such a great job preaching. And if we remember the story of the road to Emmaus, there were two disciples, followers of Jesus, who were on this journey, and they were talking about all that had just happened in Jerusalem how Jesus had been tried and how he had been found guilty. He had been crucified and put to death. And how there was a great disappointment that they felt because they thought he was the Messiah. Then Jesus, who cloaks his identity, comes alongside of them and points out through the scriptures that this was actually always God's plan and intent from the beginning. And when they reach the end of their journey, Jesus then breaks bread with them and he opens their eyes and they can see who he is. This is indeed the Christ, resurrected, come back to life. And then... He vanishes before their eyes. And the disciples who have now understood not only that Jesus is alive because they've seen him, but understood now that he has taught them the scriptures, they run to the core remaining 11 disciples and they tell them all of what has happened. And this creates quite a a conversation for the remaining 11. And they are now uh, cloistered together, chatting about all these things. And in the middle of that conversation, Jesus appears before them. (laughs) and the disciples were startled and frightened, as any of us would be, thinking we are alone in this room, and now the very person we're talking about appears right before us. They give a similar reaction to uh, what we would have anyone do when they see an angel. And Jesus gives a very similar response. Instead of, do not be afraid, he says, peace to you. Shalom. 
What's very interesting is that when we read those stories of Jesus after his resurrection, his go-to greeting is peace to you. Shalom. It's what he has accomplished on the cross. And yet, as this is all happening in a rush and the disciples are trying to understand what is going on, their first reaction is they think that they are seeing the ghost of Jesus. Yeah, sure, he's here, but he's not really here. This is a spirit or a ghost or a shade. And the Greek word that's used here is that word pneuma, which does mean spirit. And if we use it in the general sense or the generic sense, it can be a spiritual being or a ghost. And if it's more specific, it's the same word that's used to mean the Holy Spirit, which is why you might hear some Christians say, uh, refer to the Spirit as the Holy Ghost. These are interchangeable um, English words for this. And so the ESV said they saw that Jesus' Spirit And your translation might say they saw a ghost, but that is exactly what they think they're seeing, the shade of Jesus who was crucified and put to death. But through the rest of the story, Jesus takes great care to prove to his followers and to us here today that he is no ghost, that he is physically there, alive in the flesh. That is his main point he wants to make the disciples. This is the main thing we want to be reminded of this morning. And as we will see, the resurrected body of Jesus Christ was the same, but also different. And this is very important for us to know, to understand, and we'll explain why at the end. But the the resurrected body of Jesus was the same, yet it was different. Well, how is it the same? It was the same because Jesus was there in physical human form. This was the the thing that the disciples were having a hard time believing. So Jesus invites the disciples to touch and see that he is physically present. And he makes this argument on his own in verse 39. He says, For a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So Jesus understands that the disciples are startled. And then he gives them very compelling evidence that he is there in physical human form. But it's not just any body that Jesus is inhabiting when he is there. It is the same one that was crucified. Because secondly, Jesus points to his hands and his feet in particular to show that he is the exact same person as he was on Friday when he was hanging on the cross. These locations would have been the locations where the nails would have gone through his hands and his feet, and he bore the same scars. So the resurrected Jesus is the same as the crucified Jesus. These are the same person. These events are tied. They're connected. They are all part of that one saving act of God to his people. So now the disciples know he is physically here, and he is the same person as he was before. But then lastly, to make his point even more compelling, Jesus eats food to reinforce that he is not a ghost. Some of you are taking notes. You're like, okay, so we are supposed to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus ate food. What's for lunch? I wonder what's for lunch. No, we don't need to get distracted. It's probably not broiled fish. I know many of you are going to be going out for lunch on Mother's Day, and I hope you have a wonderful time. The reason Jesus did this, I don't think it was even because he was hungry. He was eating intentionally to prove that he was physically present. Because ghosts don't eat. They don't need food. He is doing this to further convince his followers that I am alive. I am here. Jesus is no ghost. In all of these ways, he is the same as he was before. Yet Jesus is also different. His resurrected body is something more. We see this by reading more between the lines, particularly how Jesus appears and how he disappears, reveals that for all the similarities, that he is flesh and bones, that he can be touched and 
and felt that he has the same scars that he can eat. For all those similarities, his body is now something so much more than it once was. There is an element of the supernatural or the spiritual at work in the resurrected body of Jesus. In John's gospel, when he goes about telling the same story as a parallel, he includes the detail that as the disciples were meeting, the room that they were meeting in was locked from fear of the Jews. You see, you have to remember what has just happened is that Jesus has, has now kind of made chaos out of all the city of Jerusalem, and it, it, and it is just spilling over. And everyone in authority in the Jewish community wanted him dead, and they saw that through to the end. So, of course, it would be just natural that the disciples, those who were seen with Jesus, people who knew they were his followers, would also be afraid for their lives. So they were hiding in a locked room, and no one could get in unless they knew that person. So obviously some people could get in because the disciples from Emmaus came and told them about this, and I think there probably would have to be a secret door knock. That's what I think would have happened. It would have to be something like... Right? That's the only secret door knock I know. That's what I envision happening. They're like, oh, they're disciples. Let them in. No, but Jesus didn't knock on the door. Jesus didn't open the door. Jesus appeared to them in the middle of a locked room in their conversation. How in the world does that happen? No wonder they were startled. No wonder they were frightened. No wonder that they knew in their first experience, they knew more that something had changed and Jesus needed to remind them that he was still the same. He is the same, but different. And we see him also disappear in a similar manner at the end of the story of the road to Emmaus once Jesus breaks bread with those followers and he opens their eyes, they see him for who he is, and then he, boom, is gone. The same type of thing. And then we look at the story of how he can also hide his identity. He hid his identity from Mary Magdalene after his resurrection. She thought he was the gardener. He then hid his identity from the disciples on that road to Emmaus. Something is going on here. Jesus is the same as before, but he is something more. He's something different. He is something spiritual and supernatural in the truest sense. The resurrected Jesus is the same but different. And of course, this is hard for us to understand. It's even more difficult for the disciples to wrestle through this, especially because it's happening so fast. He's appeared just right in front of them. And after appearing, Jesus still rebukes his disciples and says to them, why do doubts arise in your hearts? And that rebuke is warranted because we have covered through the Gospel of Luke and some of Matthew that that Jesus was teaching his disciples for at least three years of his ministry. Part of that teaching was he spelled out to them that this is going to happen to me. I'm going to be betrayed and killed, but I will rise again. And and then there has also now been multiple trustworthy eyewitnesses for Mary Magdalene has seen the resurrected Christ. The followers on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Peter and John have seen the empty tomb. There is now mounting evidence that Jesus is alive and then he appears to them and still they doubt. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? It's interesting that word doubts there. The word for doubts truly means thought, reasoning, or opinion. Thought, reasoning, or opinion all meant in the negative sense. The doubts that they had were logical doubts. How could this be happening? I've never seen anything like this. Like this. this doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. It is not possible. The doubts that they were wrestling with were the doubts of logic. And reasoning because God was doing something he had never done before. He was accomplishing something that is truly a miracle. Now, church, our eyes must also be open to God working in ways that we don't expect 
in ways that we can't explain. And if we find ourselves like the disciples, so focused on all the things that we have seen and experienced, and we always expect God to do those same things, we will miss something that he has for us. In fact, I would say this, that if our faith is limited to our rational thinking, we will miss everything. If all we do is think about Jesus here, if all we do is is, is look for God to do the things that we have seen done before, then we will miss everything. Something I find very frustrating as a parent of young kids is when we're driving in the van and I want to point out something on the side of the road to my kids and it's really specific and we're going pretty fast. And wouldn't you know, they have this unique ability to look everywhere except the place that I'm pointing. I'm like, no, over here, uh, 10 o'clock, right by that purple building, you know, whatever the case may be. And they're like, where, where? And then we pass it and then they missed it. So frustrating. Something similar happened when we were on vacation. Uh, We were on our way to go to a Coyotes game. And, uh, and then where the Coyotes played was very close to where the Arizona Cardinals play for the NFL team. And so as we're getting closer to the arena, we can see this big stadium in the distance. And, and my oldest son, Eli, is a big sports fan. I know he wants to see it. I'm like, Eli, check it out. That's where the Arizona Cardinals play. And same thing. He's like, where? What? How? And then before you know it, it's behind a building and he missed it. I'm like, son, come on. You're looking everywhere but where I'm pointing. Now, eventually we did get closer and he did see it. And it's probably my fault for explaining it poorly. But I do wonder if our Heavenly Father does not get frustrated at us for looking everywhere except for where he is pointing. Because we, we know we've seen something good out this side before, so there must be the next thing has to be out that same window. Well, we have no idea. Right? We know who God is. That will never change. But how he moves, what he is doing, what he wants to do in our lives and in our community, he could be wanting to do something that we've never seen before. Are we ready to have our eyes open. As a church, are we prepared to do something new? Are we open to changes and doing things in a different way? Or do we expect to do church the same way as always? These are important open questions for us to have. Now, this is not to say that rational thinking or using our logic is a bad thing. We're not called to put our logical selves to the side in order to be a Christian. We're not called to stop discerning through what happens. It's no mistake at all that Jesus, when he comes before the disciples and he's there and then they they have these logical doubts, there's no mistake in the fact that he uses empirical evidence for them to believe that he is physically there. He doesn't say, quit thinking that way. He says, no, touch and feel, see, watch me eat. He appeals to their rational thinking in order to convince them that he is truly risen from the dead. And today, so much of our faith can be readily understood and defended rationally. When I was in seminary, the things I loved the most were my systematic theology classes. The ways in which I could just dig down deep with others and say, how can we understand God even better, more fully, more accurately? How can we make sense of this? And across the Christian church, there are hundreds and thousands of of people who are gifted apologists, those who can defend our faith and say believing in Jesus, believing in the one true God is is a rational and a logical thing to do. All of this remains true. But our logic and our reasoning must never be the only way that we experience God because he is not bound to our rules or limitations or the things that we expect to see. But now the disciples have been given this evidence. They've been able to touch and to see Jesus. And after moving past the rational doubts, the disciples still disbelieved for joy. That's what we read in verse 41. And I love it. 
They disbelieved for joy. This is something different altogether. It is literally another way of saying that this was too good to be true. Like, like, okay, I understand it a bit, I guess, but can it actually be happening? Is Jesus really here? What a roller coaster they've been on. They were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. They left everything else, every part of their life behind to follow him. And then they were looking forward to, to inheriting his kingdom. And all of a sudden he was betrayed and arrested and condemned and crucified. He died. All of that seemed to be stripped away from them. Now they're hiding in fear of their lives. And now Jesus is not only back, but he's conquered death. That this kingdom that they thought was even much greater than they could have imagined before. What a roller coaster emotionally that would have been. So yeah, it seemed too good to be true. I mean, in our experience, when something seems too good to be true, it's because it usually is too good to be true. So if you've ever had some junk email come to you or you check your spam folder and there's this rich prince from Nigeria that has billions of dollars at his disposal and all you need is to give him your name and your number, your address, your bank account, your credit card number, your social insurance number, you know, and then he will happily bequeath you $5 million. Um, That's too good to be true because it's not. It's a scam. Or when you answer your phone, the first thing you hear is a foghorn. You've won a cruise. No, no, I have not. That's not a cruise. That's another scam. When something seems to be too good to be true, it's often because it is. And sometimes things do come true that seem almost too good. I I thought of this as on the very small scale, but I'm a big baseball fan. And when we're living in Texas, we love to go to Rangers games. We'd sit up in the upper deck on Tom Thumb Tuesdays. Right, Dad? Is that how it was? And one day, one year, opening day was on a Tuesday. And, uh, and you might have to fact check me. I might be misremembering all of this, Dad. You have to let me know. But so it was on a Tuesday, and we were like, well, is, are they actually going to give us half-price tickets on opening day? or Can we still go? Are there even any tickets left? And we look, and sure enough, we can buy some tickets. So we did. We went there, and it's like, oh, and why would they give us a deal on this day? I mean, this is opening day. It's the one day of the year that everyone wants to go to. It's going to be sold out. But we managed to get seats somehow. So I went to school the next day, and I told my friends, hey, I'm going to opening day. And they're like, no, you're not. <laughs> it's the same, same reaction to the scam email. You're not going to opening day. That's, that's a nice story, Andrew, but you're, you're clearly not going anywhere. And then halfway through the day, the intercom house, <laughs> Good Andrew Dick, please come to the office. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm leaving. So long, suckers. And out I went. And I experienced for the once and only time in my life opening day baseball in person. And it was fantastic. And that was just a small thing where it almost seemed too good to be true. But it was. Now think just for a second, not just of the disciples, but of you as a, as a person. A person in need of hope. A person in need of an answer to fear. A person in looking for purpose in life. A person who wants to know what happens next. And now there is this truth, this promise, this good news that Jesus, who was once dead, is now alive. And that in him, you have this life as well. Now that seems too good to be true. I still sometimes disbelieve for joy and I marvel along with the disciples. But truly, this was way, very different than having those rational doubts. The word for disbelieving for joy was now about faith and trust. It's now engaging a completely different part of the disciples, no longer the head, but the heart. They are now not only understanding, but trusting that Jesus is alive. Now John records in his gospel that one disciple was missing from this reunion, and that was the disciple Thomas. 
The other disciples, the ten that were in the room, were able to see and touch Jesus. They had the evidence that they needed, and then they believed with their head and their heart. They believed logically and emotionally. And Thomas wanted that same opportunity. And I know I've shared this before, but it's one of my favorite stories. We're going to read it again in John chapter 20, picking up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He was absent, said John. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And this is where he earns his nickname, Doubting Thomas. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them this time. And although the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them He appeared in front of them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The disciples It's hard to wrap their heads and their hearts around what was happening. They had first-hand evidence. But Jesus adds this in. We have this recorded conversation with Thomas, not for the benefit of the disciples, but for the benefit of all the followers of Jesus who would come after. And as that early church explodes, it is full of people from then until right here today, of those of us who have never had the privilege of touching the hands and the feet and the sides of Jesus. And yet we still have the call to believe. Believe with our rational minds that the body that was dead and breathed no more is now alive. And to believe with complete faith and trust that this resurrection signifies our eternal hope in Christ. So you might be saying, okay, we've, we've established the nature of Jesus' resurrected body. That's great. We've established that struggle through the beliefs with the, with the disciples. But why does it matter? Why does the nature of Jesus' resurrected body, body matter to me, matter to us? Because he is the first of many. Jesus reveals our hope for the resurrection. Paul explains this really well in 1 Corinthians 15. And he talks about the fact that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Well, how do we understand first fruits? Well, this would have been to understand that there would have been a field of a crop where there's a produce of some kind. And then when that was time to harvest, they would go and they'd take the first portion of that crop, the first fruits, excuse me, and they would bring it to the temple. And that would be part of their sacrifice, part of their offering. And that first fruits would be of the same substance of the rest of the field, of the rest of the crop. It was the first of whatever else was to follow. So keep that in mind as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. 
So church, the glimpse we get of the resurrection of Christ is a glimpse that we get into our own future hope. Something physical, yet something so much more. Something the same, yet something completely different. Christ first, then when he comes again, like he has promised to do, then all of those who belong to Christ will also experience that same resurrection and then eventually await this eternal fulfillment of the kingdom of God. In order to explain this point further, Paul uses an analogy and he says that our earthly bodies are seeds for our heavenly bodies. He uses this gardening metaphor or analogy which we should all be aware of at this time of year here in Manitoba. And I love the way that he says and explains our hope. We're going to skip ahead to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Just like gardening season, we have this wonderful uh, analogy in front of us all the time that we take a seed and we'll plant it, we'll bury it in the ground, dead and gone, and yet out of that same substance will sprout something so much more beautiful and productive and valuable. I had the opportunity uh, just over a month ago to go to uh, Sheldon and Carrie Enz's place. They have a greenhouse just outside Grunthal. Was it Garden? No, Green Valley Garden Center. Is that it? Right. And are you open today? No. What about tomorrow? All right, so everybody go to the greenhouse tomorrow. Don't go today. But you should visit them. It's a wonderful place. And I got to go when everything was just a seedling. And, and there was these, what looked like fairly small trays, and everything had just been planted and just began to sprout. These little tiny sprouts. It's amazing to, to see that part of the process because just a few weeks after that, then things get transplanted into a, a bigger pot so that it could grow even bigger. And then it gets bought and, and brought home and transplanted again so that it can flourish. And we have right before my eyes this, this pointering, this picture, this finger pointing to the hope that we have. That what is sown will one day become something so much greater. Church, uh, this is uh, it's a hard Mother's Day for me. Uh, I almost didn't want to do Mother's Day at all, but I thought, that's not fair to y'all. <laughs> you guys want to celebrate Mother's Day, I know. Uh, it's the first one without my mom. Uh, I don't, I'm not the only one. I know there's many of you here who don't have your mom with you. And um, this uh, scripture was chosen for me to preach, and I thought, well... Well, at least this has nothing to do with Mother's Day. And it doesn't really... <clears throat> Sorry. But it has everything to do with my mom. And with myself. And with you. The thing that I want to leave us all with is where we were left with um, in 1 Corinthians 15. And as the music team comes up to play... I want you to understand the hope that is in these words, the promise that is in these words. What we have now doesn't last long. But we do get to move from perishable to imperishable, from dishonor to glory, and from weakness to power.
That is our hope. Let's pray. Father, you are you are the giver of our hope. And you have given your own son to secure that hope for us. You gave him over to death, but it also pleased you to raise him first to life. And so God, as we consider the fact that, yeah, we've got these stories in scripture that are trustworthy and true. God, I pray that we would allow the impact of those stories to drive very close to home. Because what we have now today will one day be sown to be imperishable, to be full of glory and full of power. And that is something that nothing in this life can take away.